The article that we are discussing today is a concept analysis of the term cultural competence. And honestly, I felt a bit apprehensive going into this article, as the phrase itself just feels outdated to me, and it also just feels too soft and narrow to really push our profession towards equity and justice. But nevertheless, after spending time with this article, I thought it was a worthwhile read and a solid jumping off point for discussion. The authors do their best to provide readers with a better understanding of cultural competence, one that can be operationalized into practice. And fair warning, the specific mention of occupational therapy in this article is grim. The authors refer to a study where OT showed significantly biased attitudes before and then also after formalized cultural competence training. It is a sobering reminder of how far we still have to go in our profession. Then after the article review, it is just my honor to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kalia Robinson-Johnson. Her and I will discuss the article and its findings and the steps that we can take towards justice, equity, and inclusion in our profession. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this week's article, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. After listening, all you'll have to do is head into there to take a test and earn a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the course today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the antecedents to cultural competence for healthcare providers. And our second learning objective is that you will be able to recognize the defining attributes of culturally competent OT care per this article. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring on Dr. Johnson to discuss how this research plays out in your practice. The article that we are looking today is called Cultural Competence in Healthcare in the Community, a Concept Analysis. It comes to us from the Journal of Health and Social Care in the Community, It was published in 2018, and it is ranked 49th on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So the article opens with some background on cultural competence. The authors tell us that in the 1990s, several models of cultural competence emerged. And the authors cite multiple examples of these different definitions. One example that I liked was published in 2002 and gives this definition. Cultural competence is the ability of providers and organizations to effectively deliver healthcare services that meet the social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients. So like I said, the article puts forth just several nice definitions like this of cultural competence, but as we just know too well, academic findings do not always translate to real life. And despite plenty of literature out there, There remains a lack of clarity among clinicians regarding both the definition and the implementation of cultural competence. 
the authors point out that we seem to have arrived at a place where cultural competence is considered essential, and in some cases is even supported by policy. But unfortunately, there is little to no direction on how exactly to translate cultural competence into practice. How do we ensure that healthcare professionals understand and address differing cultural needs so that we can deliver great care? This is a big question, and there is no easy answer. And to complicate this further, we've actually learned in the past decades that there can actually be pitfalls to focusing on cultural competence. The article really hones in on one specific pitfall. The authors tell us that being aware of cultural differences does not automatically lead to positive changes to cross-cultural care. Knowledge alone does not mitigate racial, ethnic, and cultural discrimination. In fact, we've come to find out that emphasizing cultural differences can actually feed into ethnocentrism, which is this idea that your culture is the gold standard by which other cultures should be judged. So if we know that knowledge isn't enough, it begs the question, what does it take to catalyze real change? What does cultural competence need to entail to improve outcomes for our patients? And these are the questions that led into this research. So turning to the specific intent of this paper, the authors contend that a better understanding of cultural competence could assist healthcare providers to engage in culturally appropriate care and to attain positive health outcomes. Therefore, they sought to carry out a concept analysis with the following aims. One, they wanted to identify the theoretical and operational definitions of cultural competence. And two, they wanted to identify the constructs that make up cultural competence in a community setting, including the antecedents, the defining attributes, and the consequences. So what were their methods for doing this? The authors undertook a systematic review of literature to find articles that discuss cultural competence in community health. In their search, they also included these related concepts, cultural safety, cultural knowledge, cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity, cultural humility, and cultural skill. Then they used the papers that they discovered to perform a concept analysis. The hope of a concept analysis like this is that it can provide a shared understanding about the core aspects of a behavior to make it actionable. I think that the steps of the concept analysis that they undertook are super interesting, and I definitely refer you to the article in the methods section to read about the process in full. But for our purposes, we're going to move straight into the results. And the authors found 26 articles to be included in their concept analysis. And in these articles, they identified the antecedents, attributes, and consequences of the concept and then use these to put forth their definition. So we'll begin by looking at these antecedents, attributes, and consequences. So starting with the antecedents, the authors found these preconditions that they contended must be present for cultural competence to emerge. There are six antecedents, and I'm going to just read through them and say a sentence about each of them from the article. The first is openness, which they describe as being curious enough to want to learn about other cultures, And this comes from reflection on one's ethnoculture, beliefs, and behaviors. The second is awareness, or being able to recognize discrimination, stereotypes, and prejudice, and understanding that Western medicine can be seen as a constraint to Eastern culture. 
The third is desire or having a motivation to become more culturally aware, skillful, and knowledgeable. The fourth is cultural knowledge, understanding of cultural differences, values, and behaviors. And this can be acquired through training, education, or experience with culture in a variety of contexts. The fifth is cultural sensitivity, which is holding attitudes, perceptions, and values that show heightened awareness of one's own culture and recognition and respect for another's culture. And finally, cultural encounter, which is creating an environmental situation that allows cultural competence to ensue. We'll move a little more quickly through the defining attributes and consequences. They pulled out three attributes. The first was respecting cultural differences and tailoring care accordingly. The second was providing equitable and ethical care. And the third was understanding or showing insight or empathy. And then the last category is the consequences. If we have these antecedents in place and we show these attributes, these hypothetically should be the consequences of cultural competence in the community health setting. And they list five of these, which is quality health care as perceived by the clients themselves, adherence to treatment and advice, client satisfaction, effective interactions, and improved health outcomes. Okay, so those are kind of all the pieces they found of cultural competence, and then they pull it together into this definition, which I'm just going to read in full for you so you can hear how they kind of pulled all these things together. So the authors say that cultural competence is using one's understanding to respect and tailor healthcare that is equitable and ethical after becoming aware of oneself and others in a diverse cultural encounter. Cultural competence occurs when one is sensitive and embraces openness, has a desire to want to know about other cultures, and actively seeks cultural knowledge. Cultural competence is enhanced and sustained through possession of a high level of moral reasoning. And cultural competence results in improved health outcomes, perception of quality health care, satisfaction with health care, and adherence to treatment advice. So that is not my favorite piece of writing of all time, but you can definitely hear how they took what they found from the analysis and kind of built this definition. So before moving on to the conclusion and discussion, I really want to zoom in on one place where occupational therapy was mentioned in this article, because I think it really highlights a key learning from this piece. And frankly, this is just a section that we as occupational therapists need to sit with. In the section of the analysis where the authors discuss providing ethical and equitable care as a defining attribute of cultural competence, the authors put forth the idea that moral reasoning is essential to respecting cultural differences and thereby providing equitable care. Without moral reasoning, having knowledge just simply is not enough. And to illustrate this, they reference a 2010 study, which I'll link to in our show notes, where OTs underwent a six-hour in-person cultural competency training. At the beginning of the training, the white female OTs held significantly negative attitudes towards Black individuals. And these significantly negative attitudes were unaltered by the end of the training per a standardized pre- and post-assessment. Despite the content of the cultural competence training, the therapist continued to believe that one, cultural competence does not play a role in effective health care, and two, that health disparities did not result from racial discrimination, but rather as a result of stress and personal choices. The researcher equated their perceptions to quote-unquote 
cultural blindness. And the authors of the concept analysis, again, use this as an example of why cultural competency knowledge needs to be taught alongside moral reasoning. Okay, so now headed into the conclusion and discussion, the authors again assert that culturally competent healthcare systems could help to reduce long-standing health disparities. They put forth their multifaceted definition of cultural competence, and they actually have a nice graph of it in the article, too, that I recommend you look at. The authors propose that instead of focusing on training skills and knowledge about various cultures, we should seek to develop a higher level of moral reasoning. They say this needs to be mastered through exposure to authentic situations where healthcare practitioners are required to make ethical decisions by reflecting on their experiences, feelings, and intuitions. So there is just clearly a lot to unpack from this article, which is why I'm so thankful to be welcoming on our guest today. Dr. Kalia Robinson-Johnson holds her PhD in addition to a master's degree in occupational therapy. She is an assistant professor in the Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She also serves as an affiliate research faculty at the Virginia Commonwealth University Center for Cultural Experiences and Prevention in Richmond, Virginia. Broadly, Dr. Johnson's research focuses on health services, access, and participation with racially minoritized individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as developing culturally affirming interventions that can support their community engagement. Additionally, she is involved in research aimed to address pathways to occupational therapy for African-American students and racial equity in occupational science and occupational therapy curricula. Her work is informed by 15 years of experience spanning Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. She is also the co-host of the Dr. Thoughts podcast, which has been one of my favorite podcasts to listen to recently. I'm always inspired when I hear her speak. And like I said, I'm so thankful that she is with us today. So without further ado, I will patch her into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I'm so thankful you're here to talk about this topic today. I think there's so much power in words and the language that we use, and I'm really looking forward to unpacking this term and what's helpful about it, what's not helpful about it. And I'm especially thankful to be talking to someone with a PhD who is accustomed to looking at research like this and kind of dissecting it for us, though. Yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, yeah, no, excited to to dive into this topic with you. It's um, a timely one for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Before we turn to the article, I wanted to learn just a little bit more about you and ask how you found OT in the first place. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. I don't, you know, I didn't find OT. I think OT found me. That's, I think, a common story we hear Mm. (laughs) from people in the profession. I first heard about occupational therapy after my father had had a stroke. He had one that affected his his vision and memory, and OT was part of the evaluation team that took care of him and everything at Emory University down in Atlanta. And and mind you all, this was years ago, like I was in in high school, so some, some time ago. (laughs) And, you know, hadn't heard of it before and was like, oh, this is really interesting and different, you know, sort of tucked it away in the back of my mind. And when the opportunity presented itself um, in high school to take 
some health profession courses. I forget the actual title, but did a little more research on occupational therapy. Learned that there was a, a school that was a little over an hour from where we lived at Brunel University. And so I decided I would apply to the program. Now, it was the only OT program that I applied to. I was very much set on going to college to major in clarinet performance, <laughs> of all things. Oh, wow. Yeah. Talk about taking a, a complete left or, or departure from yeah. my plans. It's a huge surprise to my parents, for sure. But as fate would have it, Bernal gave me the most scholarship money. I was like, well, OT seems cool. I hmm. think I'd like it. I'm going to try it and see. And loved it. Stuck with it. And so... I'm glad that I decided to apply to that program on a whim because I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Absolutely love, love being an occupational therapy practitioner. Oh, that's awesome. I love stories where people get to see OT in their personal lives and how impactful that is, especially early on. And I think that's what draws so many of us to the field. Though I am a little sad you're not a professional clarinetist though too. <laughs> you know, I continued to play for a little bit, but you know, finally put it down really before going back to school to get a PhD. So I sadly have not picked up a clarinet since. Need to change that. Get back to those. Yes. Uh, yeah. get, get back to that occupation that I love. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you found OT. And tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now and how it relates to our topic today. Yeah, so now I am a professor in the Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I've been there for three years. And, you know, in relation to today's topic, you know, culture, race, equity, diversity are really at the nexus of my work as a professor, mm -hmm. as a researcher, and even as an occupational therapy practitioner. There in, in my division, we teach conceptual foundations of occupational science to our PhD students. And in that work, I teach a lot of content related to culture and occupation. I'm also teaching that course to our master's students this fall. So if any of them are listening to your podcast, surprise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also in my work as a professor, I instruct students on culturally affirming approaches to research and the pitfalls of using race and ethnicity as variables when they collect data, when they analyze data. Also use culture as an important mediator of health processes in my work that I do as an occupational therapist. As a researcher, I also do that work around health equity with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So there is, you know, a lot of ways that I think culture, equity, justice, all of those topics that relate to sociohistorical processes all intersect my work at various touch points, whether it is my research or my scholarship or my practice. It is a thematic thread, if you will. I don't think there is anything that I do at this point that culture and I'll say all of its sisters and brothers don't touch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get to talk on the podcast about justice so frequently and I've just come to think that like OT work is always justice work. And that isn't the kind of language that I learned as a student 10 years ago. And I'm so hopeful that students now think about this work differently and have a different foundation than I did. Do you think that's the case? Do you? 
oh, in the studio? you know, same. And I'm, I've been out a little bit longer than you, but I imagine probably the ways that we were taught were very, very similar. And I think that the students that we get now are oriented to this work a little bit differently. Like they're already thinking about it when they come to us versus yeah. I think these ideas being taught to us as being something that's important to practice. They see it very much a part of practice and not something we do in addition to. So I won't say it's less work for us that we don't have to teach them about it, but I think it's harder for us because they want to make sure that not only are we teaching it, but we're living it. You know what I mean? They don't want to just have somebody who's sort of speaking to the issues in the classroom. They want to know that we that we write about it, that I'm conscious of it when I do my actual work, um, when things are happening in our community, that they see us and that we're visible. When it's time to advocate that we have presence and then anybody, you know, us included, that have some sort of a platform, that it is evident that it's something that we actually believe in and not just these little additives that we sprinkle on here and there in our work. Mm-hmm. So it's really about living the truth than just speaking to the truth. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And what a great push for us because, I mean, I think we all want to say that justice is important to us, but I think we all need that push to live it. And I like this article because it made me think critically about like this very particular slice of it. So I guess... To turn to cultural competence, I just wanted to talk about, to start with, just like unpack the word a little bit before we talk about the analysis of it. And I guess just ask what the term means to you and if what you saw in the article kind of aligned with your understanding of it. Yeah. So I think this is a great way to to start this, right? Really, what what does it mean? What does it mean to me? How does the article mm-hmm. talk about it? And Broadly, I conceptualize cultural competence as the ability to apply cultural knowledges and sensitivities in a way that affirms and supports the needs of people that we work with. And I'm going to back up and, and sort of point to the fact that I say knowledges because there are multiple ways of knowing even within cultural groups, right? So using mm-hmm. multiple knowledges and sensitivities to, to affirm our diverse populations, One of the issues, though, with the term is that kind of like occupation, right? There's no one accepted definition or universal definition that everybody uses and understands. And so consequently, the way that we sort of apply it and understand it is really based on our own theoretical, professional, and moral orientations. And the other thing, like what you alluded to earlier, is the issue with language, right? When we think about competence there in and of itself is implied mastery and proficiency. So if you apply that to being an OT practitioner, that means that we in some way have this proficiency in knowing about a culture that is outside of our own. So using myself as an example, you know, if I am competent in Southeast Asian cultures, then I am some way you know, have this very specific set of knowledge, not just about the history, but language and all of these other things that relate to a specific culture, all of its nuances. And I don't, like that is impossible. And the the, the thought or the expectation for me to, to demonstrate that is a setup for failure. <laughs> and so those are some of the drawbacks. I don't know, we'll talk about that a little bit more about cultural competence. 
Now, I do believe, though, that the authors of this article did a really, really good job with providing the range of definitions to the reader to, like, what's used to characterize cultural competence. But I think the thing that most stuck out to me or aligned to my own thinking was the, the definition by Bentecourt Green and Carrillo that they noted, which was that cultural competence is the ability of providers and organizations to effectively deliver healthcare services that meet the social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients. And I think ultimately in how cultural competence is applied in healthcare, that was really the intended use of the term. And the authors presented their own definition after completing their concept analysis. Um, And for those listeners, that's on page 599. And so the, the definition that they came up with is that cultural competence is using one's understanding to respect and tailor healthcare that is equitable and ethical after becoming aware of oneself and others in diverse cultural encounters. And then they go on to say that it occurs when one is sensitive and embraces openness and, and so forth and so forth of all the attributes and things that they identified in their analysis. And so while I think Banticourt et al. and then Henderson et al., give us a more comprehensive and, I think, living definition. You know, there's an implication that this is not a sort of a one-time thing, that it is evolving. Cultural competence, I think, understanding it is useful in that way. But we certainly see that sort of in real life, if you will, um, (laughs) cultural competence really is used differently. And Mm -hmm. I would hope that the definitions that they've provided would be something that is a more uh, accepted definition that is used in OT, if not anywhere else, right? Because we're talking to OT practitioners, but it's the utility of it though has much to be desired. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The use of language is so interesting to me how, yeah, they put forth these different definitions that are pretty expansive and, encompassing of like what you hope cultural competence would be, but the use of it is different than I think how we use it implies that mastery that you were talking about. Or we go to cultural competence trainings that aren't effective and we kind of know that. And what I was surprised to see in the article and thankful that it came up was it actually highlighted an occupational therapy study that was so unflattering, I thought, of OTs where they went to this six-hour cultural competence training and they had significantly, they say, cultural blindness. I just want to use the word like racist attitudes beforehand and afterwards. And I read the that original article that they cited, I went back and read it and you could just like feel the author's discomfort even and what she was writing about. And for me, that was hard to read, but also an important part of this discussion for OTs where our profession has these biases. We as practitioner have these biases and seemed like a really important thing for OTs to sit with. Do you agree? I feel like I'm rambling on that a little bit. Yes, very much. I think a, a very important mention in the article for sure. Now, the the funny thing about trainings, right, <laughs> cultural competency trainings, we 
I'm, I'm glad to hear you say you went back and read the original paper where they talk about that training more fully because in the Henderson paper, you know, we don't know the specifics of the training. But what is evident, I think, in the literature in general about these sorts of trainings is that the sort of lack of change in attitude is, is an issue in multiple industries, you know, including healthcare. The fallacy of these trainings is that they really don't touch on the issues that I think people think that they do, right? People, they know how they, how they think and they feel, but these trainings often don't require this critical reflection piece about those attitudes and understandings of cultural groups and how we engage them. So what is the, not the implicit stuff <laughs> that we need to think about and address, like what's the explicit? How does it come out? How does it manifest in actual clinical settings? Because learning about different cultures is not going to circumvent those cognitive shortcuts that people make when they're actually mm -hmm. providing OT services in their setting, right? People are going to lean on those stereotypes and, you know, the things they heard about Black people, so to speak, growing up or people with disabilities or people from other countries. That's the stuff that they are going to draw on and take up and use to help them facilitate what it is that they're doing. And they think they're building rapport when, in fact, they are causing harm. And I think the other unintended consequence of cultural competency training is ethnocentrism, right? And I think the, the article speaks to that as well. You know, people then think because we have the collective, like professional we, right, we've sat in on this training and now we, we think we have an understanding of what Latinx and Latinx cultures are like. So now I can go out and treat everybody from that community the same, <laughs> right? It doesn't necessarily teach you about the nuances and the fact that cultural groups aren't a monolith. They're not homogeneic. They're, you know, differences based on regions where people live, you know, or the fact that, you know, a lot of people of color are diasporic, you know, so while I might have African ancestry, you know, I have grown up in a very specific part of the United States. So there's Southern influences and all these other things. So I say all of that to say this study, I think this specific example, though, is holding up a mirror to the profession, right? Yeah. Like, I am honestly not at all surprised by what I read. I, one, experienced it too much personally in the profession, but I think what it does highlight, though, is that, one, these trainings don't work, right? Until mm -hmm. we are really providing the sort of structured learning that speaks to racism, like you mentioned, and not being afraid to call a thing a thing, because that's exactly what it is. Some of that, I'm sure, was the, the journal saying, you can't use this term because that happens too. There's a lot of policing around mm. words and how things yeah. are published. And we have very much been functioning in, in that space in occupational science and occupational therapy as well. And there's a, an article written about that by Brenda Began about how much editing happens and words like racist and racism being taken out. But that's an aside. But anyway, mm. until I think, whether it's on the practitioner end doing continuing education and, or even on the OT education end, that we move beyond bias and cultural competence and really talk about the structural mediators that allow things like health disparities to persist, like systemic racism, institutional racism, then we're going to continue to graduate practitioners 
that will very much present like the OTs who were in that particular study. Yeah, thinking of that article as a mirror was really powerful to think about the racist attitudes that we hold as individuals, the structural racism that happens in our healthcare communities, and then some of the things that we've done to address that, like these trainings have been ineffective. So from that point, I turned to the article then and I'm like, what can we take away from this article on cultural competence? What are the strengths of it? Is there anything useful? Is it so flawed we should just throw it out? What was your reading and take there? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I I laugh not because the there's not anything to take away from it, right? I think there's always lessons in in what is printed in journals. But I think speaking to cultural competence specifically, I think the article does make really good use of mapping out definitions, right? And Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate the sort of methodological approach to this so that readers understand like what the attributes are, like really what is needed to really look at cultural competence in the way that I think is intended. Like they mentioned Mm -hmm. things like openness and all of that. So really spelling that out. That is really the first article I've read that has done something like that, like in relation to healthcare. I think in some of the sociology literature, even like policing literature and things like that, that stuff is talked about a little bit more. But I think when applied to healthcare, this may... I mean, I really think this is the first paper I've read where that really spells that out. So I think that is a a great strength of the paper. People need to take it up, use it as a starting point, Mm -hmm. right? But it also, I think, helps us think through the fact that cultural competence isn't something that is appropriate for all situations. Like even within healthcare, we sort of use it as a starting point, but it can't be the end point. Right. And I think some of the supporting articles that were assigned for this podcast really tap into that. You know, cultural humility is one that is that is used quite frequently now because it really focuses on the sort of emergent or evolving sort of ongoing learning that happens in collaboration with the people that you work with. So it's not like, oh, I go out here and I learn this thing and I check the box off. Really, it's it's sort of being a almost like a lifelong learner. You know, that's that's a term that, that mm-hmm. people talk about a lot. And so really treating this very much in the same way. Don't think about it as mastery or proficiency, but more so and don't and not even awareness, right? Moving beyond that, that you are essentially a cultural student and somebody who is a collaborator with communities, not on communities, and that the mm-hmm. learning should happen or healthcare should happen in a co-creative or co-constitutive way. And, you know, to put my researcher hat on for a little bit, I think for replicability, the, the paper is really well written. I really liked the methods if like if I wanted to go back and do a, a concept analysis like this using the framework that they use, I can. Even the Prisma instructions were very clear to which they should be. Prisma is very specific. Journals have very specific parameters around how you use it. 
but even understanding how the framework was used, how the analytic process happened, all of that was very, very, very clear. So I have to mention that as a strength of the article as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely gave me a sense of like, as I read it, I was like, this makes sense to me that this is one of the more highly cited articles. It did seem well-written and I agree for me, the strengths were those definitions and they they didn't flesh out the other words, but they incorporated cultural safety, cultural humility, like put those alongside it. And it was, that was helpful for me just to think about all those terms in relation to each other and when certain words are useful and when they're not useful. So those are some of the strengths. What would be your critiques of the paper? Yeah, Well, I think you sort of alluded to some of that, right? Like fleshing out some of these other terms and definitions, really sort of being clear to the reader about how these things converge, like how they align, but then also where and how they do not. Although that was not the point of the paper, I think when we're dealing with something like cultural competence and we hear all these other terms that are really related, I think it's really important to operationalize everything so that it is understood in the the reading of the paper how these things are are the same or different. The other thing, and again, I'm going to say that I am not a an expert on concept analysis. It's not it's not a thing that I do. But the the other thing is, you know, when you use Prisma, you're also evaluating the rigor of literature. But that rigor wasn't really reported. Like, we don't really know the, yeah. the quality of the papers. And because we don't know the quality, it sort of makes me question, well, you know, how are these attributes sort of, how did they arrive to some of them if there was more of a passive mention versus a really sort of deep dive and sort of conceptual mapping of cultural competency in these papers? So that part isn't clear. Some of that, I'm sure, is probably due to word count, but you know, you have to be a little bit creative <laughs> in some of that to, to make sure that rigor isn't lost because it's not at all mentioned. I think another theoretical critique I could probably make is you know, how well aligned the research aims, methods, and analysis really align. Again, you know, sort of the onus on the authors to really be clear about how concept analysis really matches systematic reviews and then how both of those things together really sort of match what the the aims of the paper are. You know, I think anybody who writes peer-reviewed publications knows that the word count is often the killer <laughs> of, of a lot of those things. But, you know, it's, I'm really nitpicking because Again, this the paper is really, really well written, but I think to have some clarity around, you know, quality of the literature chosen, as well as how aims, methods, and analysis align would have only enhanced the paper. Yeah, and I like hearing your more critical read of it, because I think even, I consider myself a total average reader, like even as an average reader, you can pick up on like, wait, how did they draw those attributes out? They didn't really go into detail on that. And you get to that final definition. And I think in some ways they were trying to put forth a definition of cultural competence as it's being used. But you're like, 
that's not how I see it being used in the world. Like, I like this definition. I wish it was being used this way, but even I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's actually how it's being used. Right. It's sort um, of a, it's almost like people want to hang on to cultural competence, right? Because it is, it's yeah. the thing that people recognize. It's like, we're going to make this work yeah. for us. So we're going to give it the definition we want it to have. It's like, but the practice isn't what we want. <laughs> No, yeah. it's the issue. So, you know, so, sometimes it's, we have to retire terms, you know, when, yeah. when you learn better, you do better. And sometimes mm-hmm. the divorcing language is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. This is like kind of off the top of my head. They made it more expansive, but the word itself is really narrow. And I can see very like narrow a narrow utility for it. I think sometimes in myself even, I'm like, oh, like I have the responsibility to know this basic information about someone. I have to get a baseline competence in this. So, yeah. So we've touched on this, but I just wanted to hit it really explicitly and just talk through one more time just the limitations and the potential harms of clinging to this word, of continuing to focus on it. What are those? Yeah. So, you know, like we've pretty much already mentioned that it really, I think, creates cognitive shortcuts, right? People start to rely on this knowledge versus really understanding the nuances of cultural groups, like ethnocentrism, you know, being the consequence of that. A couple of the other things is that it really becomes a, a surrogate for racism and, and other things. People will refrain from calling it that and just say it is a lack of awareness or understanding about mm. cultural groups when, in fact, this is something that is more systemic and institutionalized as a practice. And another supporting article that you have from the American Journal of OT, that moving from cultural competence to cultural humility in OT, the author, I think, really outlines exactly what you're asking in the potential harms. And and what she has outlined is that cultural competence really focuses on emphasizing knowledge about cultures, right? Just learning that basic information about groups of people. It expects providers to be adept and knowledgeable, right? It's almost like learning the test, right? I'm going to learn this information so that, you know, when I have to confront this particular group, I know that I'm always going to choose B as as my, my approach to my assessment and intervention sort of thing. Focuses on differences between cultures, right? Again, it doesn't focus on the, the within differences. We treat cultural groups as a monolith. She also says that emphasis is placed on personal culture and how it differs from others, but does not typically delve into the prejudices and implicit yeah. bias. And I really think the language here is really, really nice because what she really probably should be saying is that it focuses on differences without really pressing people to understand their own, not just prejudices, but racist views. And when I say that, this is not to just put it on you know, non-people of color because people from minoritized backgrounds are also socialized this way, you know, can take up racist ideas and cause harm in, in the clinic or not just clinical setting. I'm, you know, I work in a medical school, so I say that a lot, but in, in practice settings, right? So imparting those, those racist views on our patients. 
And the last thing that she mentions is that cultural competency is generally silent on issues of power. And that's within and outside mm. of healthcare. So again, a very limited and narrow focus. It doesn't give considerations for power differential between the healthcare provider and the healthcare consumer. It doesn't talk about, you know, health systems and how they position people in health systems, insurance, and all of the other things that really impact how we provide care in culturally affirming or culturally competent, right? Because that's what we're talking about, ways. And so Mm -hmm. I really encourage people to keep this in mind too for when their employers or, you know, OT, continuing ed providers say that, hey, we're going to make this cultural competency training available to you. <laughs> keep, keep these mm. things in mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hearing you talk just makes me, now I'm flipping back to like, I never want to use this word because I think thinking about power, the term itself to me, like plays into this dynamic of like, I solve this through like getting more power and knowledge that I like save the situation with. I don't know. Do you think that's like the implicit idea of the term? Like it's almost like it's perpetuating the cycle by situating the power within the individual versus like shared power. No, it may it makes complete sense, right? Because another part of of the the article doesn't talk about this, but another issue with sort of doing these trainings is that we go back into these environments where structurally, you know, again, like the consumer or the patient is sort of treated like almost infantilized, right? We do on and fix and tell what to do versus Mm -hmm. people sort of being in charge of their care and being collaborators in their care, right? The professional, and I'm using air quotes, people can't see that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or so the the people that are are wielding all uh, all the decisions. And I think to truly create a health environment that is affirming, that is inclusive, that is competent in those ways, right, requires the licensed folks to get out of the way, to not see themselves as experts of other people's bodies, to really challenge the healthcare system in what they consider to be things like compliance or not, and sort of dismantle what we've been doing because business as usual, one is keeping people disenfranchised. And when they're disenfranchised, they remain sick because the system is set up that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and I know this um, survey is going a little bit beyond, I think, the purpose of the, the podcast. And, you know, you and I could have a whole nother episode just on that alone. But the power sharing part of healthcare is almost non-existent because of that. Right. It places the practitioner, you know, the clinician in a position of power over people instead of allowing people to be the experts of their health. Right. The Mm -hmm. drivers of their health. The healthcare system is just not set up that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for us as practitioners to admit that there are definitely times where we've done harm historically and we continue to do harm because of that. That's 
as people who went into a helping profession, that's hard to admit, but I think that's where we need to start. And and that comes up, I'm thinking about ABA right now too, and some of our discussions on autism and same, it's the same discussion. It's the same problem, this power dynamics. So, so what we're doing, a lot of what we've done isn't working. What's one thing that you would recommend that OT practitioners can do differently after listening to this discussion? Yeah. Well, I kind of already mentioned one um, before with sort of naming the harms of cultural competence from that one article, right? Sort of keeping those things in mind whenever Mm -hmm. you are sort of confronted with taking a cultural competency training, right? Or asking those questions about like, well, who's offering it, right? Who's included in the training and who's not? Like, pay attention to that. Who's not present? Whose voices don't you hear? What are Mm -hmm. the objectives? How is culture even conceptualized? How is it contextualized? And in in answering those questions, like what's harmful in that? And honestly, I I wish we would ditch (laughs) cultural competency altogether, ditch the trainings and really focus on understanding systems, how occupational therapy functions in systems, how we perpetuate harm. And I think once OTs can grapple with that, that we as a profession also engage in this behavior and consequently can perpetuate the the same sort of cultural assaults that we try to avoid, then I think we can move Mm -hmm. forward. But I also hope that, you know, listeners do their own research I think, you know, you have provided a great starting point for people, literature that they can read, but there's so much more out there that can inform your practice. I mean, within the OT literature as well as outside the OT literature, within the OT literature, there are Canadian OTs whose work I follow, Karen Wally-Hamill and Brenda Began, speak Mm -hmm. a lot to the fallacies of cultural competence and sort of the the need to take up cultural humility, even cultural fluidity and some other terms that they talk about. And then there's a recent paper in the Journal of Occupational Therapy Education by scholars at the University of South Dakota about how to learn to be more culturally affirming and using that in the educational process. So if nothing else, just like earlier I mentioned about sort of being a student of this work is engaging in regular inquiry, right? And reading about this topic. So make mm-hmm. it, make it a, you know, a part of your, your weekly schedule. If you have a, like me, I have a trash TV night, you know, something that I can just yeah. veg out to <laughs> and unplug, like something that doesn't require thinking, like replace 30 minutes of that with reading a journal article about yeah. uh, <laughs> cultural humility. Um, Make it easy. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That theme of like words have power, what we read is important. And then yeah, justice is a way of life, like a lifestyle that we adopt and it's so ongoing. And yeah, I love that advice of just making it a habit. You kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I wanted to push a little bit on like 
what do you think our profession needs to do different? Like the OT profession itself, or what's one thing? There's lots of things. Yeah, what's like oh one thing you would? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I have sort of, I haven't beat the brow. That I have not done, but I've definitely mentioned a few things that we could do. But I think if if people don't hear anything else, I think the one change that we could make is make this very explicit component of what we teach in occupational therapy and occupational therapy assistant academic programs, mm-hmm. right? And not just sort of this like, one-off that, hey, I'm going to do a course module on institutional racism. It's like, no, students really need to understand, one, like historicize occupational therapy sort of in the context of this country. Like, this is a racialized nation. What does that mean? How does it sort of play out across all areas of our life, right? And then you know, how does that then play out in the healthcare context so that we don't have people thinking that somebody is at risk of diabetes because they're black. No, it's really about the economics and the social situation and structures that allow for poor health in, in communities that are often home to people from minoritized backgrounds, things like that. So really making fundamental shifts in what is required in our occupational therapy academic programs so that we are really entering into healthcare from an honest place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want the students of today to come out of their programs so much better prepared than I was. And I think I feel hopeful. We are like Moving in that direction, I want it to be, like, faster and, Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I want more of it. Like, I see see the changes happening, but it doesn't feel fast enough or enough. But, yeah, yeah, that's a good push for us individually and for us as a profession. I can't believe this. We are down to our last couple minutes already. Are you up for doing a couple rapid fire questions? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yeah, let's <laughs> do them. How do you usually describe occupational therapy to someone? Real quick one sentence that, you know, is the use of meaningful or purposeful activity to develop, sustain, or remediate skills that enable participation. Boom. Oh, that's good. Is that memorized? <laughs> that's like I've been, I think I've, I have been saying those exact words since like 2006. <laughs> Whoa, that's really good. Uh, Elevator speech. Y'all are welcome to use it. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask what your favorite OT, like treatment or support to deliver has been when you've worked clinically. Oh, gosh. Um, You know, there are a lot because you really just get to be creative when you do some community-based work. Really, you should be creative anyway, but that's an aside. But one of the things I really, really enjoy, because I consider myself a foodie, is cooking skills curriculum. The American Mm -hmm. Association on Intellectual Developmental Disabilities has one about teaching cooking skills to adults with IDD. And so I really, really, really enjoy any sort of cooking curriculum. It's my favorite. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, when I think back on specific treatments, I'm like, I remember patients and what we made. Like, there's something really 
special there. I agree with that for sure. What's something that you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? And I've been thinking about this. Um, I try to think about like a, a particular paper or book or something, but it's really about a collection of works, peer-reviewed journals specifically written by Dr. Aliasha Sewell, who is a sociologist at Emory University. She does a lot of work around improving measures of racism, mostly around housing and policing, but she also applies her methods to healthcare. And so I've really mm. sort of been digging into her work and really trying to understand, better understand these you know, sophisticated quantitative methods that she's using because health services research is what I'm doing. And I really, really want to bring that measurement piece to, to OT, specifically around racism. So that's, that's where my head is these days. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm so excited for your work. And yeah, I think the final thing I want to ask is just, is there any like final thoughts that have percolated to the top for you that you want to restate or reemphasize or anything that's synced up for you in this conversation? Yeah, you know, I think the last thing I'll say is that, you know, this this kind of work, right, becoming more culturally affirming in your OT practice is not something you're always going to get right. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with, with making the mistakes because it's not if it happens, it's when it happens, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to use that as points for learning and for pivoting, right? Because when you, when you learn better, you do better. Mm-hmm. So don't approach the work as, you know, I have to do this so that I get it right. Approach it as I have to do this work so that I don't do harm. Well, Clea, thank you so much for speaking with us today, for yeah, just sharing. I'm really glad you didn't become a clarinet player and that you're <laughs> with us in the OT profession. I certainly make more money as an OT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to support my cooking habits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, well, thank you. And hopefully we'll have you back to the podcast again someday. I hope so. Thank you for having me. Wow, I am so thankful to Kalia for engaging in this conversation today and for the work that she does. I loved hearing how she processes things. I think in real time on this podcast, you could just hear me being challenged and inspired and just really eager for our profession to grow and continue to claim our occupational therapy work as justice work. To read in full some of the articles that we discuss, you can head to our course page. If you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, again, what you'll do next is head to otpotential.com where you can sign up or log into the club. And in there, you'll find a five question test that you can take to earn a certificate. In the club, we'll also have a written breakdown of the article today and forums to discuss your own reflections on both the article and this conversation. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.